In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for us to gather together and to dig into the scriptures and to meditate on your word. I pray that you may open up our hearts, that we may receive your word and be transformed throughout our time together. Unto you do our glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. So we're going to start with the epistle to the Ephesians. And uh, it's a little difficult to do the Bible studies over Zoom, but I just want to encourage you to participate as much as possible. Um, Just share your thoughts, any questions, anything that's on your mind. Uh, Just make sure you take yourself off mute whenever you're speaking and put yourself right back onto mute whenever um, you're not speaking so that we could avoid any feedback or any echo. And you could also just submit any questions that you have through Slido, so you could use the code that's been up on the screen right there. The code is the Vine, so you have that for you to use throughout our our time together. All right, so everybody, open up to the Epistle to the Ephesians, and we're gonna dive right in. I want to start out by giving you a little bit of context. Okay, so. I want to give you a general overview of what's going on um, in the context of this epistle, some historical overview of what was just happening right before that so that you know uh, what's taking place whenever this letter was written and why it was written and some of those questions that we always want to ask ourselves whenever we're studying a certain epistle or a gospel because we, we got to know who wrote it and why they wrote it and what's the real purpose and what's the context, what's going on at the time or else whatever we're reading doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. All right. So for starters, the very first thing, the simplest thing we can say is that this epistle was one of the four epistles that St. Paul wrote in prison. Okay. So we studied one of them last time together, which was the epistle to the Colossians, and the other two are Philippians and Philemon. So this is one of those four. And the prison epistles have a very distinct and unique flavor about them. Because, you know, St. Paul is, is in a very dark place, but something beautiful is just shining through all of his words and his epistles are, are full of joy, even though his um, his situation isn't too good now. But you see something that's very special about these epistles. Now, during this imprisonment, St. Paul was in Rome, right? And he was appealing to Caesar because of his Roman citizenship so that his trial can take place in Rome. And during this time, he's basically waiting for his trial to happen. And you could only imagine if you're about to be judged and your life is on the line, then you're definitely going to be worried or just anxious. 
even if you're a man of faith, I mean, there's going to be a lot in your mind, but for St. Paul, that wasn't the case. I mean, it, it just seems like everything that he's writing out of these four epistles, especially we'll see now as we get into the Ephesians epistle, that like, his words are very clear, you know, they're filled with the Spirit, like this is definitely a, like a canonical letter that the church like decided was inspired by the Spirit. Alright, so like I mentioned, it's written to the Ephesians. Now, a word to say about Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a large central city, and this place, I mean, you can probably compare it to Alexandria, where you could think of it like a central hub for trade, for commerce, um, a lot going on, and it's a very busy place. This is actually the, the same place in Asia, in Asia Minor, the same area where St. John, when he was writing Revelations, wrote to send to those seven churches which were located in the same area, Asia Minor, and that's where we find Ephesus in Asia Minor as well. Now, St. Paul evangelized in Ephesus for at least two years and three months, maybe even more, but what we know in, in Acts chapter 19 is that St. Paul was there for three months, and then uh, people weren't too fond of him, so he kind of just shifted to the outskirts of Ephesus, and then stayed there for a couple of more years, evangelizing and preaching and ministering to everybody in the area of Ephesus. So that gives us an idea of what they were exposed to before. Okay, now... I want to just mention a few words in giving you a better idea about what was really happening during that time while St. Paul was in Ephesus before he wrote this epistle. Okay, so this is during the time that he was trying to evangelize in those two years and three months or maybe even more. And it would have to be uh, several years before his imprisonment while he's actually writing this letter. Okay, so... I'm just going to mention to you what the, the author of Acts, which is probably Luke, is, is telling us about this time that St. Paul spent. And this is from Acts 19. So we're going to just jump around from verse 8, 10, 11, and just go all the way to verse 20. But I'm just going to cut out the, the bulk of what we really want to take away here. So he says, Now, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persecuting, uh, sorry, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. This would be kind of nice to have right now, one of St. Paul's aprons or handkerchiefs, and just wipe out this virus. But <laughs> anyways, this is 
the level of sanctity that we see in St. Paul. And this is what was happening in Ephesus. So obviously God working to reveal His, His power and His grace for everybody in Ephesus through St. Paul's ministry. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it toiled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So, we get a sense of the fruit of St. Paul's ministry, that God's name was glorified, that the number of believers multiplied. And during these, these two years, a lot of fruits were produced. Okay, but on the other hand, St. Paul ran into a lot of conflict. I told you, Ephesus was a central city of trade and commerce, so there was a lot of shady business going on, and a lot of idolatry, and there was the, the god, goddess of Diana that was worshipped at that time, so paganism was, was eminent, and a lot of people that were committed to that sinful life, we're not happy with whatever St. Paul was doing, okay? So, St. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 32, when he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? So he's telling us here that he fought with beasts in Ephesus. Now, this isn't a literal sense because... You know, it's not like St. Ignatius who was like martyred by beasts. <laughs> but he's referring to the heretics who were beasts in that sense. And those who opposed the way of truth, right? So a lot of pagans, people that were profiting from their sorcery or their magic or their worship of idols were not happy with St. Paul opposing their message and everything that they believed. All right, so this, this gives us a good context for what was happening in Ephesus because now we understand the type of people that he's writing to and we can plug ourselves right into this community where there are people that knew Paul and they loved him and they believed in God because of the ministry and the preaching that they heard from St. Paul. And there are other people who were uncertain, people that didn't believe at all, right? So in one way or another, this is a very dynamic letter because he's writing to a very diverse group. You know, predominantly the people that knew him and the people that believed in the beginning, he even says to the saints at Ephesus, but he also knows that there are some Gentiles there that he wants to reach out to, okay? And again, those Gentiles are just people that are outside of the faith, and those who are considered outcasts, those who don't believe. And he wants to reach them too and to bring them in. All right, so any question about the, the overview and the context of this letter before we get into the structure of the letter itself? Again, I want you to just share anything that's on your mind if you have any questions. Any thoughts, feel free to just throw them out. Otherwise, I'm going to move quickly so that we can cover as much as possible. All right. So, 
like I said, this epistle is very tough to to summarize in one specific theme. Because like I said, it's very dynamic. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus, Ephesus, the believers, those who knew him, but at the same time he's reaching out to the Gentiles. And it's full of theology and practical application. And like some of the fathers even call this like the summary epistle of St. Paul's writings, okay? So it's hard to like pinpoint one specific theme, but if we were to somewhat define what the general message of this epistle is really all about, we can say that St. Paul is emphasizing the richness of life in Christ, okay? And the unity of the body of Christ in the church. Okay, so he's emphasizing the richness of that life and, and how God has blessed us and cared for us and the providence of God. He emphasizes that a lot, right? And in doing so, his effort is to unite everyone in that same common life. Okay, so he emphasizes the unity of the body of Christ in the church. If we look at this epistle structurally, we can basically split it up into two halves. Okay? And it's a very simple breakup. You can say that the first half is basically a theological foundation where he's really talking about some simple, basic theological principles that some Gentiles might not know or the people who believed may need a good refresher or to just dig a little bit deeper into that. And Again, this is where we always start. We always start with correct theology. We always start with dogmatics. Because the Orthodox faith has to be centered in objective truth. right? And then that translates into the practical application. Okay? We need both. Right? And that's where we get into the second half. Which is the practical implication of that theological truth. Okay? And it's six chapters... We can literally split it up right down the middle, like two even halves. The first three chapters are more about theology. And of course, there are some practical uh, information and advice that he gives during that time or during those chapters. But it's predominantly theological. And then the second half, chapters four, five, and six, are more about the practical implication of who God is and what God has done for us and that theology that he wants to emphasize. Okay? And it's linked by a very critical word where he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and meekness. And some of you now are hearing this and you probably remember, oh, we read this in the, the morning prayer, the, the first hour of Igbeya, right? Because this is the practical spiritual life that the church wants to... Uh, invite us to walk, right? To, to walk in this path of very simple, practical, and, and spiritual lifestyles. Alright, so that gives us a good idea of the context, where St. Paul is, his own predicament, and uh, what's going on in his life while he's writing this, and the background of the people that he's writing to, what's going on in that area, and the specific population or the demographics that he's writing to and the actual structure of the letter itself okay so now 
we should be ready to dive right in and dissect this whole epistle. All right. I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. If there's something on your mind, please, like I said, feel free to, to ask. Uh, just unmute yourself and throw out any questions on your mind. Or um, if you just want to save it to the end, you could also just submit it in the slide do using the, the keyword, the vine. Okay, that's the code for the slide do questions. So I'll give you just a second in case there's something else on your mind. Otherwise, we'll dive right in. All right. So I guess everybody got it all covered for the introduction. Now, St. Paul usually begins his epistles with a very simple and specific introduction. And we see that like, that's definitely the case in this epistle here. In his initial greeting, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So we'll just take these two verses to start. I'll read it one more time. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So, why does he start this way? And at this point I want to give you a chance to just share your thoughts, even if you don't have any questions about what I mentioned earlier. Hopefully you could just share your thoughts and try to be a little bit more engaged. But tell me why you think he starts this way. Yeah, touched on this topic um, in the last book too. But I think it's more of, you know, to kind of like appealing to them. You know, before you kind of address somebody, um, you want to more or less kind of, not necessarily get, like kind of get on their good side right and like and you're esteeming them up um and, and we're all saints right um not just so it's not like he's he's kind of just throwing the word saints out there lightly um it's because in christ we are saints by you know so i think that's why he addresses them that way very good very good so he's definitely appealing to them number one like you mentioned and there's a lot to be said about this title or this label that he gives them. Now, let's just dig it a little bit deeper into this appeal. For starters, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So, this does appeal to them in a couple of ways. For starters, it's a validation of his own credibility, right? Because... He's telling them, like, hey, I'm not self-ordained, okay? I didn't appoint myself. I was appointed an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not by my will, okay? And this is like a foundation in his credibility, right? And if anybody is questioning who, who this guy is and where he's from, and what gives him the right to instruct us about God? He sets it straight from the beginning. 
by the will of God. And the, the rest of the disciples testify of this. And everybody at this time knows his background. And the story of his conversion has circulated. They know that he had this revelation on the road to Damascus. And this is essentially what gives him that credibility so that what he says is built on solid ground. So, okay, this is someone who's appointed by God. This is a credible author that's writing to us. It's not just somebody um, from the streets just sharing their own random thoughts. Okay. Another way that this really appeals to us, and I think it's even more important that the credibility that he gives by saying that this is by the will of God that I'm an apostle, but it's almost like he's mindful of where he himself comes from. Because he's not saying that I earned this apostleship. He's almost just approaching it in a very meek sense, where he says, this is a grace. Like, I was appointed by the will of God. I know that I am the least of the least. And he even says this a little bit later in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's telling them he knows that he's nothing. He knows that he's the least. And from the start, he's saying like, I want you to know that I'm not going to pride my apostleship over you. I'm not going to come to you and parade this apostleship. I'm not going to speak down to you. And, and like that to me is so powerful because that teaches us something about how we ought to approach others, right? I, I know we're not going to say, you know, um, Father Joseph appointed to Christ the Savior by the will of Ambassarapian and our God in heaven. Like, I'm not going to put it that way. But at least in the back of my mind, I need to know that I'm, I'm not a priest by my own merits. And aside from the priesthood, if you're a servant or just anybody talking to another person in any ordinary conversation, if we're not going to come down to the very same level of whoever we're talking to, then we're going to appear like we were talking down to them. And we never win anybody over in that sense. And almost every conversation is going to be dictated by the start. You know, how we start a conversation with somebody is going to uh, basically determine the, the tone or the mood, the, the, the type of mindset that we, we apply going into it. Right? So he wants to tell them like, hey, I'm not trying to talk down to you. Right? I'm appointed an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And this is a testimony to his apostleship. And it's also a very meek, humble start, which almost wins them over in that sense. All right, now, like, like Jack just mentioned, he's speaking to, to the saints in Ephesus, and what this tells us is that he's addressing the faithful, the, the Jews who have accepted Christ, 
And this this title isn't just reserved for in our limited understanding now the way we think of it that it's just for those who are in the icons at church. Right? That's what we think this title is reserved for. And we get into that train of thought and it's very destructive. Where we think, oh, the icons are just St. Just Mary and St. John the Baptist. Like, you know, um, if you're not in any of those icons, you're not a saint. Or St. Paul tells them that in Christ, by His grace, that is the sanctity that's working in you. And that's why he's not too shy to use this title. Right? He even uses them and tells them, in Christ we are sanctified and he is our holiness. And, and we need to always keep that in mind. I always remember the words of Father Bishore Kamli. He says, We are saints and denying this title is not a lack of faith or a lack of humility. He says, We are saints and denying this title is not a lack of humility. But it's a lack of faith in the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. So when the Holy Spirit works in my life and gives birth to Christ in me, He becomes my sanctity. And if I have faith in that, then I realize that I am made a saint in the eyes of God so long as I am committing to that life and I am faithful in that. If I believe that, it doesn't mean I lack any humility. But as a matter of fact, I may be lacking faith if I don't realize that God has given me that sanctity and called me a saint. Alright, let's continue to the next Four verses. Okay, so we'll read from verse 3 to 6. So he says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. I take a moment to just read that one more time to yourself, because it typically sinks in a little bit differently when you read it to yourself. So take a moment to do that, and then we'll discuss it together. Alright, so my first question for you is this. In this little section that we just read, He says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, he obviously feels quite blessed, right? Now, where is he writing this again? He's in prison, right? So, my question to you is, how can someone who is in prison, he is awaiting a trial that may possibly lead him to death. Someone who is persecuted during this time, it's a time of anxiety and a time of darkness. How can he say something like this? How can he say, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Like like St. Paul, what are you blessed with right now? What do you have? So, what do you think? Why is he saying something like this? I mean, this is, it's a 
obviously he's a man that's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no way that he is able to speak these words and be filled with all these spiritual blessings uh, apart from the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit working in his life. Um, and also, it's also you know he's a man that has his eye on the bigger prize. So whether he's in prison, wherever he may be, um, he's blessing God because his eye is in heaven. It's not necessarily on the on the temporal things. Exactly. So he says, yeah, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places in Christ. So, I mean, that answer right there just nails it. We, we, we see someone who is joyful. I mean, you see joy radiating in a statement like this. No one would feel blessed unless they're filled with joy. And, and that joy comes from a certain faith that he knows that, that he's not living for the, the present moment. You know, we have to live in the moment, but we're not living for the moment. Okay, so you got to be careful with that. We're not living for the riches of this earth. We're not living for everything we're, we're, we're building, our homes. And, you know, we're, we're living for the eternal life. And we have to start working and pursuing that here and now so that we can experience the heavenly life at the moment, not just whenever we depart. So, so for him, the heavenly life, like, like Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And this is something that was within St. Paul. That's why somebody in, in prison can feel blessed. And I really wonder if during this time, where we feel imprisoned in our homes, right? <laughs> this pandemic and this quarantine, a lot of us feel restricted and we feel like, you know, there's just so much darkness and our joy is depleted, our patience is depleted, everything is depleted. But the only way we can really follow in the footsteps of St. Paul is if we realize where our real goal is. Right? We're not living for our jobs or uh, our homes here or whatever we're building. We're not living to eat and drink and just like have some fun time watching movies or whatever. So again, our focus, our attention is on the eternal life and we see someone here who is focused. Like, he's goal-oriented, right? And we even see this whenever we're talking about, like, successful steps in academics or any career-building workshops. Be goal-oriented, right? Okay, so here, here you see it. To be goal-oriented in a spiritual sense. All right? Now, the next question is, in the very following verse... He says, just as He chose us. Right? Now, He chose us for what? What is He choosing us for? Is it adoption? Okay, He's choosing us for adoption. Now, the, the adoption comes in relation to this, this sense of predestination. We're going to get into that in just a second. 
But even before you get into verse 5, he says that he chose us that we should what? To do what? For what? Like what is he choosing us for? Say that again. I said be united with him. Being united with him. Now, be even more specific. He says that we should what and what? Right in that verse. Be holy and without blame. Exactly. This is what God chose us for. To be holy and without blame. Yes, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So, we're chosen for that. By the way, if you think of this word chosen, it's not a small word. This is, this is the very title of Christ. Christ is the chosen one. Like the word anointed, the Messiah, Christos, to be anointed is to be chosen, is to be set apart, is to be designated for a certain task. We are designated, we are consecrated, we are anointed, we are Christ, chosen for holiness and a life without blame. Okay, now let's take a moment to just dig a little bit deeper into that before we move on because there's very important point that we got to make. What's the difference between holy and without blame? Or is he just repeating the same thing here? You're kind of just emphasizing like, be holy, be without blame. I really want to drive this point home. Or is there actually a real difference? Is holy like set apart for him and without blame in the sense of um, our sins before we stand before him blameless right because in Christ we are he took our blame he took our shame and everything okay almost right on and and I don't think there's much of a right or a wrong answer here so you're you're definitely right in thinking in that sense although Saint Jerome distinguishes this different in a very specific and a beautiful way so he says to be without blame is essentially to be without fault, to, to be innocent. You know, if you're not guilty of a crime or whatever, then you're without blame, right? Um, if, if the cops are doing an investigation for a burglary and, you know, they see that there's no evidence for you to be considered as one of the suspects because, you know, there's nothing pointing to the thought that you might have done it, then you're without blame. You know, you're, you're innocent, right? And almost every Christian can fit into this specific genre to be without blame. Like, I didn't do anything wrong, right? I'm without blame. That means I didn't kill or steal or lie. You know, I'm just being nice, living my life, and I smile at people, and I'm just doing my thing, right? Without blame. You know, I'm not a criminal. But to be holy implies a much more assertive sense. Because you could be without blame just by avoiding the wrong. Does that make sense? 
Whereas to be holy, you can't just be holy by avoiding sin, by avoiding the wrong. Just because you're avoiding wrong or sinful behavior does not mean you are pursuing a life of holiness. And that's what St. Jerome is emphasizing here, that to be holy requires an assertive and proactive approach where we ourselves are willingly pursuing this life. Okay? So, it's not enough for us to say, oh, I'm without blame. You know, um, one of the servants or a priest comes and is encouraging you, like, hey, I want you to come serve, or I want you to, you know, help with this or that, or like, I want you to just push a little bit more in your spiritual life and you say oh I mean Abuna I'm not doing anything wrong like I'm just fine like you know you don't have to be so strict and you know the spiritual life doesn't have to be so demanding and you know I'm just going to work like clean up the house I take care of the chores I you know I don't do anything wrong no 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 no. the question is are you being holy and without blame or you're just being without blame. Both are important. You gotta avoid the wrong. But you gotta be pursuing a life of holiness. Okay. Now, before we get into the very next topic about predestination and adoption and this uh, this whole world of theology and 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 you know uh, intricate language, I want to just mention one final point about the ending of this specific verse. Right? So, he says that to be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now to me, this last phrase, in love, almost like comes a little out of context. I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I was thinking like, to be holy and without blame before Him in love, like, does that mean, like, to be in love with Him? Like, I have to be holy and without blame before Him in love? Or what does this love really refer to? Right, so what do you make of this very, very last word that He just kind of attaches, almost seems a little out of place? There's something very important about this word when we realize how it actually fits into what St. Paul wants to emphasize before he moves on to this next part. So what does in love refer to? Does it refer to us? Does it refer to God? Does it refer to just like a general saying? I think it refers to our love for Him that we are being kind of proactive in our spiritual life and in our, in our offering to Him. So this is actually... How I initially read it when, when I first looked at this verse, it seems to be read in this way. But the Greek actually has a very different connotation when you look at the grammar. And you might also be able to pick this up in English too because there are a few prepositional phrases. And usually whenever you look at grammar, once you take those prepositional phrases out of the sentence, then you can 
make sense of the subject and the verb and try to just simplify the sentence a little bit more. So what you can almost do is take out the very middle chunk of this verse and just pause after just as he chose us. And then everything after us is a prepositional phrase. In him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Right? So take that whole middle section out and it will literally just read just as he chose us in love. Just as he chose us in love. So it really points to God's choosing. It really points to the manner by which he chooses. Because this serves as the principle, the very core of God's actions, God's behavior. And if you miss this, you're going to miss everything that's following what St. Paul is writing. A lot of people might think, okay, look, Father Joe, you're just splitting hairs here and you're getting caught up on technicalities and this word and the Greek and this and that. Trust me, it's actually critical for us to understand this specific concept because if, if that's not the foundation of how you think about the way God chooses, then you're going to look at predestination and adoption as something selective, something outside of God's love. And that's why people like Calvin and a lot of Protestant denominations think that God just picked a few people before the foundation of the world and He said, these are the chosen ones, these are the ones that were saved. But if we're saying He chooses in love, then what He chooses has to be without partiality. What He chooses has to be all-inclusive. What He chooses has to be unconditional. Because that's what love is. Love is unconditional. It doesn't say, oh, you, I know you're going to be a stubborn priest. <laughs> you're not chosen. This is probably what he would say about me. Or you, you're going to be a little lazy. Or you're just going to cut corners. Or you're going to lie a lot. And you're not chosen. That's not the way God works. Okay? So this kind of sets the tone for this very next part about predestination. Okay? He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons, right? and, and that's what Joe, uh, Jack mentioned just a little earlier, that this is what we're predestined for, to be sons by Christ, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And the final purpose, how that is expressed, is to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Right? So what's the, the, the final culmination of this sonship or this predestination? It's, it's this praise. It's this sort of angelic life. And you think of the heavenly hosts. Their essential purpose is to praise God. I mean, they are ministering spirits and they minister to us. But in, in all of eternity, what are the angels doing? Right? So 
for us to be granted that very same grace is for us to be elevated to that very same life. That's why we say praise is the holiest level of prayer. And it's not always correct to 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 put together like different levels in prayer, but we do know that there is like a certain grace in praising God that is above every other type of prayer. Because in praise, we're not begging Him for stuff. We're not asking for stuff. We're not requesting stuff. We're, we're not, you know, just talking to Him about what we think. Or We're simply saying, God, You are good. We love You. We thank You. And we just want to lift up our hearts and, and shout that out at the top of our lungs. So it's the most unselfish type of prayer. That's why it's typically defined by all the fathers as the highest level of prayer. And that's what we're predestined as sons to inherit all that requires, that, that, that belongs to Christ. If we are sons with Him, then we inherit all that belongs to Him. And that is essentially what the heavenly life is all about. That's why he plugs in this word as, as glory. I'll mention to you what St. John Chrysostom says about this. He says, So that our love for Him may become more fervent. Okay? This is the very reason that the culmination of of, of God's will for us to be predestined as sons chosen for that specific life. He says, it's for us to increase in our love. He says, the very reason is so that our love for Him may become more fervent. So God desires nothing from us except our salvation. Clearly God doesn't need our praise. Right? He doesn't need a bunch of people just worshiping Him. He's complete. And, and that's a theological foundation that we always have to keep in mind. It says He doesn't need our service or anything else, but does everything for this end, right? for the end of our salvation. And the one who openly expresses praise and wonder at God's grace will be more eager and zealous. That's why... Typically, you'll find yourself, the more you praise God, something happens like deep down inside, like, ah, that was good, I want to do that again, you know? Or whenever you start singing to God, you're like, wow, because there's something heavenly in that we were wired, like in our intricate spiritual DNA, there's a heavenly component in us that just comes to life. That's what we were created for. All right? So, let's go back to this the concept of predestination because there's a lot to be said here. I want to just bring your attention to what Saint Cyril says in describing this concept and, and he starts out by explaining what was on God's mind from the the very beginning of creation. And and even for the reason why God would allow death to enter into the world, because clearly if He's predestining and He's 
setting things in motion, then he had to have known death would come. He had to have known that he would send his own son and he would suffer. And So this was not a surprise to God, right? So, St. Cyril says, for this reason, the death of the flesh was determined. Right? This is why Adam was permitted to die, permitted to transgress and fall away from that grace, which is essentially what caused his death. He says, yet the living creature was not consigned to complete destruction, but rather to renewal, and if we might say it thus, to a refashioning in the same way that a vessel which has been smashed is later made whole. That in the meantime, the living creature would in fact experience corruption, the maker was not unaware. But he well knew that together with this, there would be deliverance from those things that were improper and the removal of corruption, as well as the return to a better state and the restoration of those good things that were there in the beginning. He says something very, very bold, right? He says, obviously, that these things were going to happen. He says, the maker was not unaware. It wasn't just like, oh, shoot, Adam just ate from the tree. Oops, like I didn't see that coming. (laughs) He very well knew. And because he was aware, he had put in his mind before the foundation of the world this economy of divine salvation. And the boldness of St. Cyril here, and this is the mind of the fathers that he says that he well knew that together with this there would be deliverance from those things that were improper and the removal of corruption as well as the return to a better state. Even something better than what Adam and Eve had in paradise. That's mind-blowing. Right? But this is what God predestined us for. He predestined us for salvation. A salvation that's even better than what Adam and Eve might have had had they not fallen. Right? So he continues to say, For he knew that he would later send his own son in human form to die for, on our behalf, and to destroy the power of death so that he might have dominion over the dead and the living. For God understood that as soon as he had brought man into being, he would fall into corruption. Nor was he ignorant of the matter in which this could be cured. Like he knew exactly what it would cost, right? He knew that the cure would require his son. Again, take note that we have indeed been predestined according to the purpose of the Father. Right? So this isn't something that's, you know, foreign for the fathers to say. Whenever we speak of predestination, it's not something that's reserved for Calvin and some Protestant denominations. The fathers did talk about predestination, and it is scriptural. But we understand it in a very different way than the selective sense of God just picking and choosing who He wants to save and who He wants to doom. And if you're not chosen, sorry, you're just, well, tough luck. Right? So he says, again, take note that we've been indeed predestined according to the purpose of the Father. 
We've been made rich, as it were, through a most ancient hope, God having foreknown the matter, prescribing in his own counsels what things would later be granted to us. Alright, so this is the very purpose of our predestination. The purpose of, of our predestination is to return to an even better state. That's what the, the purpose of Christ's mission was. For us to be in Him, to be made sons. And, and St. Paul is going to continue to use this term to be co-heirs with Christ, to be co-enthroned with Christ, to, to be co-victors with Christ. And this is the type of language that, that the Scriptures wants to fill our minds with, that we are in Christ and having been renewed in Christ, we are now destined for the riches that belong to Christ. Like That's very powerful news. That all that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. That's what it means to be predestined for that sonship, right? Like to be the firstborn of God. That means to be the one who inherits all that belongs to the Father. Right? So, this is a good place for us to stop. Um, I want you to just kind of dwell on this concept because I know it's a little tough to digest whenever we first talk about it, but if there are any questions on your mind, I'll be happy to take your questions now and we'll uh, pick up there next week. Maybe something that you wanted to share that you didn't get a chance to share while we were talking, or more so when I was talking. But if there's anything else on your mind, just please, please, please feel free to just share whatever's on your mind. All right. So we'll stop there. We'll uh, bow our heads for uh, our concluding prayers, and uh, we'll pick up from this same spot next week. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us, for the grace that you have given us in Christ, for this wonderful message, this news, O Lord, that should transform our life. And I pray that we may cling on to you, um, that we may follow in the footsteps of St. Paul, to realize that even if we're in prison, O Lord, that we have access to, to the Father, that we are reconciled to the Father through the work of Christ and through being filled with the Holy Spirit to be made sons, O Lord, and to be renewed in your image. We thank you and glorify and we ask you to hear us through the intercession of all your saints as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. To Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.